And uh, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for all that you've provided for us. Thank you for this time of fellowship and for the reading of your word and for singing songs to you because you're, you are awesome. You're greater than a song. You're greater than, than any gift that we could give warrants. You are amazing and perfect in all your ways, holy, righteous, and true. And we come before you as beggars, Lord, who have great needs and who are uh, in ourselves failed and faulty. But thank you, Lord, that you are a redeemer and you're a savior and you have a purpose for our lives and you will see it done by your grace. And we pray, Lord, that you'd fill us with your spirit, that you give us understanding of your word and be magnified as we fellowship together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be in Acts chapter 9 today, if you'll turn there, starting in verse 26. When our family went through the process of becoming Australian citizens, there were a couple things emphasized during the process. One was that we needed to commit, or that we were committed, we had to demonstrate that we were committed to integrating into Australian society. Um, and we had certain things we had to do, like having uh, physicals, right? We had to have make sure that we weren't bringing any uh, diseases or becoming a drain on the system because of poor health. I had to supply an FBI background check and a New South Wales police report to show that I hadn't been convicted of a felony and that I didn't pose a threat. Uh, and it was very advantageous for us to talk about our, our volunteering and our, um, how we were part of Australian society with sport and helping out. Now, while being a citizen of Oz, it provides uh, freedoms and rights, there are responsibilities. And there was an expectation that we would be contributors to society. We would, we would be here for the good of all. It's entirely possible, isn't it, to seek citizenship in a country only because of the personal benefits you hope to receive. Wouldn't you say? Sure. Maybe even being part of a club. There's, there's some benefit you hope to receive from being a member. And the same thing can happen when we come to the church. We're naturally self-centered. We're individualistic. We're thinking about how we could benefit from something. And we could approach following Jesus about focused on what we're getting out of the deal or how we are benefited by this arrangement. And I love that God takes us naturally self-centered and he connects us as one in the body of Christ. And we are knit together for the purpose of contributing for the glory of God, for his kingdom on earth. And this is a remarkable thing, how God does this miracle to change us and to help us be his ambassadors to the world. We bring nothing but our sin, but God redeems us and uses us for his glory. And it's magnificent to see. So we've been talking about Saul. Peter, many others in the Bible, they're examples of God's grace and his power to transform people. And he uses them to accomplish his will. Peter was fine to fish for a living. He was perfectly content with that being his life, being a fisherman. But God had a plan for him. He said, you will feed my sheep. Saul was content to be a Pharisee and to persecute the church of God. But Jesus had a call upon his life that he would be his ambassador to Gentiles and Jews and to kings. Something that he didn't call, he didn't ask for. But God had this plan for his life. God met him on the road. We read about this last week. He broke him. He blinded him. And he brought Ananias alongside to lay his hands upon him. And we see Saul going forth 
and making disciples of Jesus Christ. So their coming to Christ benefited the whole body of Christ, right? It wasn't just Peter who was benefited through following Jesus. He fed the sheep. And it wasn't Saul who was only benefited from having his eyes opened along the road. He went and took the gospel everywhere, and the whole church was benefited. So when we come to Christ, and when we enjoy times of fellowship like this, it's not primarily for us. It's for God and for him to use us to accomplish his will that goes far beyond what we've ever asked or dreamed. God is the reason we gather. And this, this place and our fellowship together is an outlet for his service. So last week we talked about the miraculous conversion of Saul. He went from a chief persecutor of the church to being a follower of Jesus and an ambassador. He's using the scriptures and the synagogues to boldly proclaim Christ. People cannot resist the wisdom that he's speaking, and they seek to kill him. And having been made aware of the plot, he was lowered by the Christians he had sought to persecute outside the city in a basket and was let down to safety. Now, after he was let down in the basket, he explains in Galatians 1, 15 through 18, what he did directly after that. It says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. So he had been lowered down in that basket. He didn't return immediately to Jerusalem, but went to Arabia. And it was three years between verses 25 and 26 when he returned to Jerusalem. This shows me that God's plans often take time. God's definite call and choosing is not a promise that things will be quick and easy. We like quick and easy, don't we? I mean, that, that's how things are marketed. This is easy. We're like, great. This is quick. Perfect. This is what we want. But no, it took three years. God had called him. God chose him. But there was three years, and we'll see what he faced when he returned to Jerusalem in Acts 9.26. It reads, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Three years had passed since Saul had departed Jerusalem with letters from the high priest with authority to arrest Jews and to bring them back for prosecution. Three years on, and the disciples in Jerusalem, they have not forgotten Saul. They remembered him very well because he had wreaked havoc in the church. He had torn it apart, done everything in his power to ruin it. And when he tried to join them in fellowship, were they like, ah, oh, we accept you? No, they rejected him. They're like, man, he could be a spy from the high priest. He is not welcome here. It says they were all afraid of him. So the people that he contacted in the church, they were all afraid of him, and they did not receive him. This distrust of Saul, it shows the persecution and how wary the church was of bringing in an outsider, one that they weren't really sure about. Those Christians rejected 
Saul, but there was one man, and I love it, it's just one, there was one man named Barnabas who met Saul. He heard his testimony. He observed his conduct. He took time to listen to him and to his story. He was a Levite who contributed of his estate to the church. We read of that further uh, earlier in Acts. He would later be called an apostle, and the meaning of his name is fitting, which is son of comfort. He showed compassion on Saul the outsider who had a bad reputation. And in trusting God, he spent time with Saul and brought him to the apostles and spoke of his conversion. Hey, he's, Jesus has met with him. And look, he was preaching the gospel to the point where they were trying to kill him in Damascus. And he, he vouched for him. Of all the believers in Jerusalem, and there were many, Barnabas was the only one who reached out to Saul. And that was gracious to him. He accepted him despite the harm he had done previously to Christ. He may not have initially trusted him either. There may have been some misgivings in his flesh, but because he placed his faith in Christ, he was able to extend grace to Saul. And it's amazing, right? How how children of God who have benefited and received such grace from God, we can be slow to give grace to others especially ones who have hurt us and we've had a history. Like, that guy said this, he did that, and he hurt people, and I'm not willing to trust him yet. And there's part of my flesh that says, well, that's pretty smart. There's this legalistic bent in each of us, I believe, that says um, others need to pay their dues before we're going to receive them back. And it's a bit arbitrary. Well, as long as they know they've done wrong, and they really know it, and and they pay the price, which is acceptable in my eyes, then I'll start to trust them or let them back into my life, right? The statement, the, the cliche is once bitten, twice shy. But praise God, it does not describe him in any way. God is not like that. When we repent and we come to him in faith, he will receive us. He will accept us because he has forgiven us by the grace of God. When we repent and we're contrite, he gladly receives. And I have to commend Saul in this instance, right? He's in Damascus preaching. His life is at risk. He flees and he returns to Jerusalem three years later, only to be rejected by the Christians. He doesn't go off and start his own church. He doesn't get angry and say, well, you know, this is a bunch of rubbish anyway. He is content with one person who was kind to him and who listened to him. He had been accepted by Christ, and then he found a friend in Barnabas. Kindness by one person was received by Saul. And may we be those two, where if one person shows us kindness, we rejoice in that. We've received the kindness of God. But may we be the one, like Barnabas, who extended kindness and grace to an outsider or one that he wasn't really quite sure about, who had a bad reputation, not just suspicious. We, they knew about him. Verse 28, So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. 
Saul lived with the disciples in Jerusalem. He continued in fellowship with them. It says he spoke boldly in the name of Jesus. He disputed with the Hellenists. These used to be his buddies. He used to get on really well with the Hellenists because they were Jews with a Greek background, and they had colluded with the death of Stephen previously. They, it seemed to happen a lot in the life of Saul. Uh, they, they tried to kill him because he was bold in speaking about Christ through the scriptures. The proclamation of Christ was a divisive point between him and the Hellenists. In the world, there's a push to be inclusive at the expense of objective truth. The church is inclusive. That means anybody is welcome. All are welcome to come to Christ. But it is also exclusive concerning the claims of Jesus Christ and the absolute authority of the Word of God, the Bible. So it's exclusive in those terms, that this is where this is our source of truth, God's Word. This is our source, and this is our guide, as led by the Spirit. And I think there's a draw in all people to avoid offense and to attempt to hold a neutral position towards things God has spoken on. And as we engage and speak boldly the truth of God's Word, even in a loving manner, we will be opposed. We will be hated. There will be trials that we'll face for being obedient to God in this area. Now, as members of the body of Christ, we are to support and encourage one another. They heard about this threat, and the, the, Jew, the Jewish believers, they helped Paul escape, and they sent him to his hometown of Tarsus. So we're to obey Christ rather than seek approval or support from the world. Let's uh, be those who support and encourage one another. And then it says, The churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. We make a mistake to think this means there was a lull in the persecution of the church. No, they were still under threat. They were receiving death threats. But even in the midst of having one of their members um, potentially attacked and assassinated, they had peace because they had peace through Jesus Christ and faith in him. They were edified and strengthened even in trials, in storms, and adversity. From a worldly perspective, their lives were under threat. But they had already died with Christ. They were not afraid of men. They, they had the fear of God, that they would be protected, they would be guided. They overcame through the love of Jesus Christ. They walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that's for us to receive. Acts 2.47, it says after Pentecost, God added to the church daily those who are being saved. In Acts 9.31, it says they were multiplied. Even in difficult times, the church multiplied. That comes from the Greek root of plethos, which means to increase and abound. It's the same word used in Acts 12.24, where it says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. It was an exponential growth. And as God's word is sown in prepared hearts, it will be fruitful. Praise God for that. Acts 9, verse 32. Now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, 
Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. The focus of Luke now shifts from Saul to Peter. He had traveled through the country. He was visiting saints in Lydda. That's modern-day Lod, which is 15 Ks southeast of Tel Aviv. It's almost right in between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And so if you were to go 50 Ks um, northwest from the old city, you would arrive at Lod, or here it's Lydda. And there was a man in Lydda named Aeneas who was paralyzed. He had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. He was miraculously healed by Jesus through Peter. And this healing bears a resemblance to the paralytic that Jesus healed, the one who was lowered down through the roof in Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5. When Jesus healed that man, he explained the purpose for the healing. He said, that you may know the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. Basically, no one but God can forgive sins. You're questioning that I could forgive this man's sins. But what is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? Well, which one would be easier? Well, the one that doesn't require proof. It would require physical proof for that paralyzed man to stand up. There would have to be power involved. But to say your sins are forgiven, you cannot see my sins and I cannot see yours. So you go, son, your sins are forgiven. What Did anything happen? We don't know. But Jesus said, so you know that I have power as God. I am God to forgive sins. Stand up and walk. Make your bed. And the man did. And everyone's like, whoa, amazing. The result, see it here, the healing of Aeneas. All who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon, that's the general region heading towards Joppa, it said they saw him and turned to the Lord. He benefited from being healed, but see how God used it. All these people turned to Christ. Our God is gracious and compassionate. I love you have this man, he can't go anywhere, he's bedridden for eight years. And God brought Peter into his life, who introduced him to Jesus Christ and that healing power that he has. There's no restrictions or limits to God's power, and yet he chose to use Peter to introduce Aeneas to Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus operated through the life of Peter. He also intends to work through your life, not out of pity for those who suffer, but for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I think we can have a lot in common with Aeneas. Spiritually, we are helpless, dead in sins, paralyzed with fears, worries, doubts. But Jesus has been brought to us by someone. I believe that everyone who knows Jesus, it's because they've been introduced to Jesus through someone. God used someone to introduce probably a lot of people to bring Jesus into your life. So may we be those who are like Peter, who bring Jesus into the impossible situations we are confronted with. Did Peter have any power to help a paralyzed man? No, even the doctors of that day had no power to help him. A doctor today might not have any power to help him. But through Jesus Christ, this man was made whole. People need Jesus Christ as Lord more than they need physical healing from him.
because that's everlasting. The change that Jesus Christ does inside a person to make us born again. And then through him, we can be his ministers wherever we go. We can go to that paralyzed person with fear. We can go to that person who's hurting. And God will use you as we're led by him. Peter continues his journey in Acts 9.36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. There was a woman in Joppa named Tabitha. She was a disciple of Jesus. She was well known for her good works and her kindness to especially the widows there, the poor people. She provided physically for their needs, and and it says she fell ill and died. They washed her in preparation from burial, but they heard that Peter was in Lydda. They had likely heard of the paralyzed man who had been raised from his bed as well in the name of Jesus. And so they sent two men to fetch him without delay. It's wonderful how when you witness the power of Jesus Christ in the life of a person, it leads to increased faith. They heard of this man who was bedridden for eight years, paralyzed and now walking they're seeing him walking people are coming to the lord and they're like man is any if he can make a a paralyzed man rise from his bed is is anything too hard from god is it too hard for him to raise the dead what do we have to lose call peter over without delay so they bring peter over he left lydda he accompanies them into joppa and he arrives there and it's very reminiscent again of when jesus went to heal Uh, Jairus's daughter right all those mourners out in front and they're they're weeping they're showing him all the things they had she had made for them that she had used her resources to bless them in practical ways and it just it struck me that there's so many people greatly used by God that have passed into eternity God brings them home Psalm 116 15 it says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints The death of one of God's children on earth is not without purpose or meaning. It's not a light thing in God's eyes for someone to breathe their last. That word precious, it means costly, valuable, excellent. It costs God a servant of his when he brings one into eternity. That's one more person on earth who is not going to be used by him because they're now in heaven with him. It's costly for him. He has a limited number. Of course, God can do everything. He does things, he does miracles without number, but he rejoices to graduate his own into glory. We're as valuable to God on earth as we are in heaven. He values us here. It's not like we're kind of half as useful for God here, and then when we go to heaven, we're doubly useful. No, we're just as valuable and useful in his sight here. And he's the one doing the work, right? Just this week, Billy Graham, the evangelist, he went the way of the earth, a man who had been mightily used by God to bring many to salvation in Christ. His labors have been fruitful, 
But now he's entering a new sphere of fruitfulness where God has other purposes for him to accomplish. When we go to heaven, it's not just going to be to sit around. God has works prepared for you to do. And if we rejoice in that thought, like, man, in heaven, God has a purpose for me. He has a plan and things he wants me to accomplish. If that quickens our spirits, well, let's be about his business now. Let's rejoice to do the things he's called us to now and embrace them. Throw ourselves into them with vigor. Tabitha had been a great asset to the kingdom of God, but God allowed her to become sick and die. Verse 40. But Peter put them all out, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. Peter puts all the mourners out. He kneels, he prays, he just says, Tabitha, arise. Her eyes open, she sees him, she sits up. He takes her by the hand and he presented her. This is where there's a bit of a diversion or um, a change from Jairus's the healing of Jairus' daughter. After he healed Jairus' daughter, remember all the scorners, the mourners that were there? And he says, she's not dead but sleeping. It says they laughed him to scorn. He put them out, and after she was healed, he says, don't tell anyone what I've done. He told them to be silent. But here, Peter presents her before the followers, before those widows that she had ministered to. And what was the response? It says, it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. I was, I was thinking, well, is Tabitha benefiting at all from this arrangement? <laughs> you know, she's in the presence of God. She has entered eternal rest and glory. And then, oh, there's Peter. <laughs> and he lifts her, and, you know, I think she was delighted to be reunited with those people that she loved. Because God, again, let he caused this to happen. It was his plan for her. And he used her resurrection as a testimony of his power. And people believed on the Lord. So I believe she did benefit from that. Um, and it's, it's glorious how God, he does things that are past finding out. We can't explain or presume to know why God does what he does. But we know he can and he does do miraculous things. Two different cities, two different people and situations, but the result of both miracles is the same. Many turned to and believed in the Lord. And in his sovereign plan, God allows Christians to, to go the way of the earth, to, to put off the flesh in death, young and, and those who are full of days. So he allows some people to die young and some people to live their life to the you know, fullness of days. No one can question his righteous judgments. No one can say, why are you doing this? As if we know better than him. The world seemed a sadder place without Tabitha. But I am convinced that God did not bring Tabitha back because there was no one else to minister to the widows or the poor in that city. That's not why he brought her back. Because there was no one who could sow as skillfully as she or who was as generous as she. 
I don't believe that God raised Aeneas from his sickbed because God really wanted that bed made. It's been a long time since that bed had made, been made, and he's like, it's time for that bed to be made. That's why I'm going to raise him up. No. God's purpose is clearly seen. People, through a miraculous demonstration of the power of God, would turn from sin and repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. He was going to use those situations And it's tough when we see people in pain. It's tough in the middle of a trial. God employs those things to drive us to seek him. God uses temporal pains and suffering to provide a testimony of his strength. Paul's conclusion, it was a good one to arrive at. He says, whether I live or die, I do so as unto the Lord. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It was not God's gain. It was his game. Because God has us, whether we're here or we're there. We're, we're his and he's ours. Has it ever occurred to you that God could have made life easy? I mean, he's done miracles without number. He could have made life very easy. It's a general consensus, I believe, among all living people that life is hard, and as you get older, it gets even harder. Would you agree with that assessment? There are aspects of life that become much harder when you get older. And when we see people having a hard time, we do have compassion on them, and our hearts swell with pity towards them, and we pray that God would make things easier, that their pain would be relieved. Now, don't understand me. God is not a sadist who enjoys seeing people in pain, betrayal or loss, rejection, even as his own son endured. But consider this, if you had the power to heal people who suffered paralysis, it would be hard for you to wait even one day before coming to them and seeing them healed. Would you wait eight years if you had the power in that day to heal them at the beginning? It would be hard for us to watch them wrestle with God, to wrestle with their own thoughts to lie in the darkness alone day after day after day. But it's not hard for God because he knows what he's going to accomplish through their suffering, that he has an end in mind that is glorious that we often cannot see or understand. If it were known that you had the power by other people to heal those who were paralyzed or to raise the dead, You would not want to withhold it in any case, lest others think poorly of you, right? If you have this power and you withhold it, well, that's not going to make a lot of friends in this world, right? We would be moved and motivated by things less than the glory of God to act. If we had the power to raise the dead, even of those who had lived wicked lives, we would do so for the sake of their grieving family who loved them and wanted to see them come to Christ. God knows something that we don't know. Through the death of a body, he can bring eternal life. That's just like, whoa. God can use the death of a body, of his own son, and even the death of Tabitha, to bring eternal life to countless souls. 
I don't know how God does that, but he does. And he allows us to go through things. I don't presume to know things that only God knows. But I can tell you in these cases, God did not raise a man from his sick bed so the bed would be made. And he did not raise a woman from the dead for the sake of her good works or for the mourners who grieved her. He did so so people would pass from death to life through a revelation of Jesus Christ and the life of someone else. The miracles that Jesus did, they have a far greater scope of impact than the individuals who were healed themselves. The entire body of Christ was strengthened through this. You see it even in the fact that when the paralyzed man was healed, here's this dead woman, and her friends are like, well, call Peter. God can do something here. And he did. Let's consider why. I, I want to see miracles. I'm sure you also would want to see God do miracles in your life and in the lives of others. But think about why. Consider why you want to see miracles. Our motives are often rooted in self because we stand to gain something from it. Maybe we want to move from anonymity to being a Billy Graham. We wouldn't mind being known. right? We, we want to see people's lives eased a bit as they go through this pilgrimage. Maybe even at the expense of the purposes that God has established in a situation. We so much need the Lord. We need him to guide us and direct us. Maybe we want a miracle because we're not willing to obey Jesus. We know that in a second he could end our suffering and change our circumstances, and we are tired of the long way. We are tired of trying to trust him. Let's choose to put our plans aside and to trust God. In the midst of pain and suffering, God will bring the comfort of the Spirit for you. We know God does miracles today because if he didn't, no one could be saved. That is a miracle we see happen. And I praise the Lord when we do. And I praise God that just because an, a miraculous event is not common, it's not impossible for God. And we don't even need to be perfect for God to do miracles through us. Think about Moses. God told him, speak to the rock, and he struck the rock. The people still had the benefit of the miracle. They all drank. Their animals and their households were satisfied. But Moses did have a curse upon him that he was prohibited from entering the promised land. God still did a miracle through a disobedient person. So we don't even hinder God's miraculous plans. Could you please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. This may come to you as a very sharp truth especially in the midst of suffering. But if you will allow it to pierce your heart, you will receive the comfort God intends. 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 3 of chapter 1. And I'm just going to read through a little bit and just highlight a couple of things. May the Lord speak to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. 
Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Saul, who became Paul, he faced death and torture many times for his faith in Christ at both the hands of the Jews and the Gentiles. And he realized something. Just as the suffering of Jesus Christ, according to the will of God, had a positive positive and eternal impact, so his own tribulation and suffering in following Christ had a benefit to everyone in the church. Wouldn't you agree? Jesus' suffering on the cross has benefited everyone in the church of God. Completely. But we struggle to see that my suffering could have a positive impact anywhere, even on me. But he's saying, this is something I've discovered. When Paul suffered, others were encouraged to endure. Like, man, he's been beaten. He's been thrown in prison again. Man, we got to stay bold. We got to keep going. It goaded them on to continue following Jesus. And then when Paul was encouraged and covered, he's like, man, it's such a season of blessing. Thanks so much for your contribution. I'm so encouraged by what God is doing. The people who are praying for him are like, right on. God's hearing our prayers. He's answering. This is amazing. So whether he was being persecuted or whether it was a season of rest and comfort, they were comforted through the Holy Spirit and spurned on to good works. We do not only suffer at times for our own good, but the good of all, so God would be glorified. We don't like this. We're like, no, I don't like this suffering. This is terrible. This is a bad idea, God. Well, may the Lord continue to speak to us. How severe was Paul's suffering? Was it just slight suffering? Well, he goes on, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Paul did not say that following Jesus has been easy. If he said, Paul, how are you going? He'd say, it's been awful. It's been very hard. He didn't say, oh, it's all good. And I'm sure you've done this like I have, where someone says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. And you you just quickly search through your life to one kind of bright spot that's not as hard and, and tough as the rest. And you give that as evidence that everything's okay. Everything's great. Everything's actually not great. But here's this one thing that if I tell you, it, it kind of, it's kind of a weak example. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a point where you're like, life would be so much easier if I didn't have to live it anymore and I could just leave it for other people to do? Life is hard. It's too hard. Paul felt that. He despaired even of life, it says. It was the sentence of death in him, the knowledge of his own mortality 
his weakness, his limitations, his inabilities, the fact that it was all going to end one day that caused him to believe in Christ who raises the dead. So he looked to the resurrection and says, he died, he's been raised to life. If God can do that, he can raise me up. He can help me when I'm low, when I'm despondent and I can't see the way, I can't even get out of bed. God will lift you up because he is strong and mighty and his purposes will be accomplished. He will do it. If God has raised the dead, can't he use you and me to make make his name glorious in this world? Can't he do it? And if we say, well, I don't think so, let's admit that and say, Lord, this is sin. I don't believe you. I don't believe what you said. My life does not show that I trust you in this way, in the midst of suffering. See, God, he delivered Paul and other believers from self-pity. Every future death, he was immune to it because Jesus had raised him up. May it be so with us. The prayers of the Corinthians, you know, don't take it lightly when someone says, I've been praying for you. What a boon to have someone praying for you. Just this week, I've had a couple people who just said, I've been praying for you. And the Lord used it to minister to me in a special way because I need people to be praying for me and you need people to be praying for you. So encouraging. Um, It provided a blessing he could not have received otherwise. And it was the difficulty of his circumstances that moved people to pray. That was one of the reasons. Sure, the Holy Spirit leads us to pray according to his will, but hearing that our brother or sister is suffering and in difficulty, it spurns us on to pray for them, right? So if they weren't in trouble, would we be praying for them? Perhaps not. To date, I don't know that I've ever received a prayer request from someone that, you know, praise the Lord, I don't need help in my life and everything is perfect. I've never received a prayer request like that. It's exceedingly rare for someone to submit a prayer request only to praise and thank God for his provision, his grace, his forgiveness. I don't get those kind of requests. The kind of requests I get for prayer is when people need help or they're in trouble, right? I mean, this is who we are. If we're in trouble, we run to the Lord. So if that's what gets us running to the Lord, let's thank God for trouble. Not that we'd ask for more trouble, but Lord, you use trouble to get me praying for other people that I wasn't even thinking about. God's able to redeem even trouble and pain and paralysis. And we go, what good could come from this? And death, what good can come from that? God will use it for the good of all, for his glory. So I don't know where you fit in Acts 9. I don't know if you identify with Saul, who was rejected, or Barnabas, who was the one willing to reach out, or you being challenged to be a Barnabas to reach out. Um, Aeneas, who had been paralyzed for years, that God raised up. The friends of Tabitha, who were mourning a loss, or Tabitha, who herself needed to be raised to, uh, to be used again by the Lord. Or Peter, who was sent to them. Like, there's so many different aspects of this message that You know what? I can identify with that. I do know that God has united us all as one in the body of Christ. And God does wonders in and through our lives. And he allows us to go through trouble so that we would realize that we need him. We would pray to him. 
and we would take confidence in him and be encouraged. That we would receive the comfort of the Spirit. We are very comfortable to, we, we will settle for lesser comforts than God. We will settle for luxuries and for holidays and for things that are not God, that cannot comfort us as God. We, we settle for those. But in our trouble, may we cry out to God and receive the comfort he has in the midst of it. We're in a world that is filled with suffering. But may our lives be a testimony that turn others to Jesus because we have introduced him to them by his grace. So be encouraged, brother. Be encouraged, sister. The things we feel are bad, the things we cannot see any good in, they can be redeemed by God for good and for eternity. Let's thank him. Thank you, Father, that you are a gracious heavenly Father, that you are good in all ways, and that your power is strong to save. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here and across the world who are suffering and who are facing troubles of all kinds, even despairing of life. And I pray, Lord, that you would just infuse your life into them through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, that we would take heart to what you have said today, that we would receive that, Lord, we would own it, and we would be praying for one another. We would not um, lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you so you might direct our paths. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement you have for all who will trust you, all who will repent and seek you. And I pray, Lord, we would be uh, those who seek you, who are still and know that you are God, who receive of your truth, and we do share of the treasure we have found because you have found us, and we, we love you, and we uh, rejoice and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.